It's Friday, November 2nd, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump is keeping immigration in the conversation ahead of the midterm elections, and he is focusing on the migrant caravan headed toward the states. He's calling it an invasion and a crisis at the southern border. The president is planning on issuing a comprehensive executive order on immigration possibly next week to change how asylum claims are handled. Daniel Lippmann, reporter for Politico, joins us for his latest remarks. Next, a great story about how spies are recruited and what they are spying on. The Trump administration is ramping up its efforts to target China over economic espionage and the stealing of intellectual property. Chinese-backed firms and other bad actors have recently been accused of stealing trade secrets from Micron, a maker of memory chips, and details for a type of jet engine technology from US-based companies. The theft of intellectual property by China could add up to billions every year. Garrett Graff, contributing editor at Wired, joins us for more on the theft of intellectual property and the way China is recruiting spies in the U.S. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As human smugglers and traffickers have learned how the game is played and how to game the system, we have witnessed a staggering 1,700 increase in asylum claims since the year 2010. Joining us now is Daniel Lippmann, co-author of the Politico playbook. President Trump had a pretty big speech at the White House talking about immigration. He's very focused on this migrant caravan that's making its way to the United States. And he was calling it a crisis at our southern border, saying that a surge of fraudulent asylum claims are coming our way. And he wants people to lawfully present themselves at a port of entry and apply to come into the country legally. He's very angry that this caravan is on its way. And he said that he's finalizing a plan that would prevent some of these immigrants to come in. He's planning on signing some type of executive order next week, possibly. The numbers of people trying to get in will be greatly reduced. But that can only happen if we're strong at the border. And the southern border is a big problem. And it's a tremendous problem for drugs pouring in and destroying our youth and really destroying the fabric of our country. There's never been a drug problem like we have today. And as I said, much of it comes from the southern border. So... In the meantime, I will fulfill my sacred obligation to protect our country and defend the United States of America. And this is a defense of our country. We have no choice. We have no choice. We will defend our borders. We will defend our country. What do we know about what his latest remarks were about? He's really amping up the fear of immigrants ahead of the midterm elections. So right. he's hitting that button to try to get more people to turn out. Unclear whether it's actually going to work because, you know, uh, a lot of moderates and Hispanic voters, Democrats, they're going to be also energized by Trump's remarks. And then through the entire week or so that he's been talking about immigration more than usual. So that could backfire on Trump and Republicans. They want to talk about issues that unite more Americans than this very divisive issue. The Immigration and Nationality Act says that anyone who arrives on U.S. soil may apply for asylum. So are we expecting changes to that in this executive order that he might be issuing next week? Well, you know, you could see a scenario where he tries to do that, but Congress plays a role in immigration policy. And so he can't just 
do all of this willy-nilly. And so he is really trying to go beyond his executive power when you talk to experts. And so that's very concerning in terms of the Constitution. And, you know, he's talked about birthright citizenship. Right. He might do that as well. I think we should just think about how Stephen Miller, he is at the forefront of this, Trump's senior policy advisor, who has long been an immigration hawk. And now he's basically the Secretary of Immigration. And so he is pushing behind all of these different proposals. He's even writing the speeches about this. This almost all certainly sets up for a battle with the courts. I mean, I think even the president might just want it to get to there. Let's make an executive order. Everybody will challenge it. It'll go up to the Supreme Court and then they'll make the decision right away. You kind of go around Congress making a new law or something like that. So it seems like he kind of wants to force the issue in that way. And it is something that needs to be handled. The immigration system is totally out of whack right now. We're getting more asylum seekers than ever before. The backlog is like somewhere in the 800,000 range of cases pending in immigration court. And it does put a strain on the resources at the southern border. He's saying he's going to send up to 15,000 troops now, even though the Pentagon says it's much less than that. You know, he's banking on the court, but, you know, the court has to also think about the Constitution. And so it's not a bank shot that he's going to uh, get all of his executive orders ruled constitutional. I think they, they did let the travel ban, a very, you know, I think the third version, right. they let that sail through, although I think there was a five to four. With a lot of these things, they have to think about the, the court's reputation. They don't want to approve something in a short-term fashion because Trump is in office. They have to think about what happens after. You don't want to have a president declare the whole constitution unconstitutional. <laughs> right. And so it's this real push and pull between Trump's eagerness to to assert himself on this issue, but also have to, you know, he still abides by the courts at least. Right. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Very rarely do you ever get approached by someone who just out and out asks you to spy for them. A lot of intelligence recruiting is about developing that friendship and that relationship right. first. Joining us now is Garrett Graff. He's a contributing editor at Wired and the co-author of the book, Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. We're going to be talking about spies, one of my favorite subjects. In this case, Chinese spies. The United States has made a couple of big moves in just the past few weeks about responding to government orchestrated theft of intellectual property, different things like that. The Justice Department charged 10 Chinese intelligence officers and hackers who were trying to steal trade secrets from aerospace companies. Let's start off there. What's been going on with these spies in our midst? Well, this is part of what has really been a concerted 15 or 20 year espionage campaign by the Chinese government to steal and appropriate Western intellectual property and technological know-how and bring it back to China and boost their economy. An underreported aspect of the incredible economic growth that China has seen over the last two decades has been the amount of that ha that has come because of stolen Western intellectual property. The book that you mentioned, Dawn of the Code War, and then some of the recent writing I've been doing in Wired, tries to look at how the government has been trying to combat those threats from China. And what we had seen was a very concerted 
strong push by the Obama administration in 2014 and 2015 that brought this Chinese espionage campaign to what was then a temporary halt. And they did that through some prosecutions, some public naming and shaming of Chinese espionage efforts. And then that truce has broken down really over the last year. And we've seen an explosion of cases from the U.S. Justice Department in the spring, summer, and fall this year of both new economic espionage efforts and Chinese espionage efforts, as well as going back and punishing some of the bad behavior that happened during that earlier era as well. The indictment that you mentioned of the 10 Chinese intelligence officers and hackers deals with behavior primarily from 2010 through 2015. And the loss of the intellectual property can cost the United States billions of dollars. There was a report from the United States Trade Representative, they did a seven-month investigation and said that the Chinese theft of American intellectual property currently costs between $225 billion to $600 billion annually. And it's all sorts of stuff. Uh, They are stealing software to control wind turbines. They were trying to figure out how to make titanium dioxide, which uh, I think it was DuPont has this proprietary multi-stage process for producing this brilliant white color And they're trying to steal all sorts of stuff. Motorola phone technology back when Motorola was really big in the cell phone game. So it's a lot of stuff and a lot of money that, as you were saying, they take it back and then they incorporate it into their technology. And then they're the leader in that industry sector and leaving the U.S. behind. The article that you wrote was about how China recruits their spies in the United States. And I thought it was super fascinating because, it, again, we've spoken about these things before and they play out like movies, like spy movies. So tell us how they recruit their spies. They start off by spotting potential people that they can coerce or get into their fold. Exactly. And most of what we have been talking about and what the U.S. government has been focused on is economic espionage through cyber means. So hacking into companies' systems and stealing their trade secrets. There's a much smaller number of cases, though, that is what I dove into for this Wired article, which is how China has actually recruited Western spies on their behalf and how they have attempted to recruit employees or intelligence assets here in the United States or in Europe and the process through which they do that. And there was actually a a big case just this fall, one of the biggest coups from the U.S. Justice Department was that they captured a Chinese intelligence officer in Belgium and extradited him to the United States to stand trial here. It'll be the first time a Chinese intelligence officer has stood trial in the United States. And so walking through that case where he had tried to recruit an engineer from GE Aviation basically to betray GE Aviation and hand over the trade secrets of some of their proprietary aerospace designs. And the way that he sort of did that through bringing the engineer over to China as part of what he thought was a, what the engineer thought was a professional exchange, offering him some money, (laughs) offering to bring him back for another guest lecture. 
and then sort of gradually transforming the seemingly professional friendship into an espionage opportunity. Right. And money is at the forefront at a lot of this. I know they have a, an acronym that we could get into a little bit later, but first they start off by spotting out who potential recruits can be. Yes, and that's really the heart of a lot of espionage work is who do you actually approach as a recruit? And one of the weird things that we are coming to understand, and this is not necessarily just Chinese espionage, I'm sure intelligence agencies around the world are doing this, but a lot of that asset spotting these days is taking place on sites like LinkedIn, where you have intelligence recruiters basically trolling LinkedIn to see who's working at which company. Right. They're looking for people who are placed, you know, well-placed in a certain company, something that they would want to get. Exactly. And that they, one of the people who's been charged this fall in one of these Justice Department cases was basically a Chinese recruit who was downloading background checks from the web. I mean, sort of those whitepages.com check that you can find with people online. And he was sending potential recruits off of those background checks and sending them back to China and saying, here, these are the people that you want to target as your next round of assets. And then the next stage, after they spot these people, they know who could be a potential benefit to them is the assessing. And basically, how might we encourage you to spy for us? And this is where that acronym uh, I was talking about comes in. It's MICE, money, ideology, coercion, and ego. And so how does this part of it work? Well, this is a classic intelligence formulation of why people betray countries or companies where they're trusted. It's they're in it for the money. They're in it for the ideology. They're coerced or forced to do it, or they like the ego boost of leading the double life. We have seen China target Westerners in almost all of these categories, but there have been some notable cases this year targeting former U.S. government intelligence operatives who are down on their luck and need money and have bills to pay and have been convinced to spy on China's behalf just for out and out payment. Yeah. One of the the cases this year was a former defense intelligence officer who received about $200,000 from the Chinese government. Yeah, he was making a bunch of different trips and off for in particular, he kind of came back. Everything was like 19 grand, 30 grand, 20 grand, $53,000 he was getting after some trips that he was making back and forth to deliver information and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't exactly say that in the court documents, but it certainly seems like that was actually how the U.S. government first got on to him, was watching him bring these suspicious amounts of cash back into the United States. The next step is uh, developing who this person is, you know, asking for small things and leading up to bigger things. A lot of times they would even encourage a lot of people to, hey, why don't you go back and uh, join the State Department, join the CIA so that they can get some more of these uh, secrets that they wanted to get their hands on. This is sort of something important in these Chinese cases, but also that we see in Russian intelligence as well when operations targeting Westerners, which is very rarely do you ever get approached by someone who just out and out asks you to spy for them. A lot of intelligence recruiting is about developing that friendship and that relationship right. first. It's not an Chinese intelligence officer asking you to betray your country. It's your buddy who brings you on all of these fun <laughs> professional exchanges to China 
saying, oh, hey, you know, we're having some real challenges with our turbofan development. Do you think you could help us by showing us some of the designs that you have found successful on? And we'll go from there. And that they sort of try to walk you down this path to being an intelligence asset without you necessarily realizing the lines that you're crossing along the way. What happens like after you've built that relationship and you know you got somebody that can kind of get deliver stuff, what's the day-to-day like? One of the quotes I saw in there is, you know, today's espionage often relies on encrypted communication tools, secret phone calls, and emails left in draft folders. Like how does that work with when you need to give people assignments and all that stuff? This is what's known as that final fifth stage, the handling of an intelligence asset. Once you have someone hook, line, and sinker as an asset, need ways to actually contact them and exchange information and get the information that they're collecting. And in many ways, in the Cold War era, that used to be those physical dead drops or park bench meetings of espionage movies of, of yesterday. Now, today, in you know what, what I call in, in this book, the Code War, what you're seeing is that almost all of that takes place from a distance and that you don't necessarily have to have people meeting in physical space anymore in order to conduct espionage. And that makes it much harder for people to detect because this is a game now that sort of every intelligence agency plays. This is how China does it. This is also how the U.S. does it. And I talk about in that Wired article, one of the really remarkable intelligence failures of the United States over the last decade was that many of its Chinese assets were actually uncovered We know this thanks to reporting by the New York Times and by foreign policy because the U.S. had bad operational security. They were using a communications tool that was not as secure as they thought it was. And the Chinese, it appears, were able to penetrate it and thus be able to figure out the address book of America's spies in China. Where do we go next with this? Because, as you said, there was a deal back with the Obama administration. And then once he left, everything kind of there was a free for all again. And now the Trump administration is putting renewed effort into this. How do we get them to try to stop stealing intellectual property and, and recruiting people to get them this information? And this is, I think, one of the things that many people don't understand about the backdrop of this trade war that Donald Trump is picking with China is that we sort of lose sight often given the madness and chaos surrounding Donald Trump's policies on a daily basis, that some of these are actually very grounded and thoughtful policy debates that are playing out. And he and the U.S. Trade Representative's office, which you mentioned earlier, have grounded a lot of their rhetoric and complaints about the Chinese trade war in this language of we need them to stop stealing our intellectual property. And that this is a major part of why the U.S. government is raising tariffs on Chinese goods is to try to sort of force them back into the box as a way to be able to use a lot of these tools like criminal indictments, like sanctions, like tariffs in order to try to drive China back to the table and say, look, civilized nations don't steal each other's secrets for economic benefit. Garrett Graff, he's a contributing editor at Wired, and he's uh, the co-author of the book Dawn of the Code War. Thank you very much for joining us, Garrett. It's a pleasure to be back. All right, that's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.